About once a decade, an American graphic designer gets kind of famous, often for designing book covers. Right now, the guy to watch is Peter Mendelssohn, one of the small handful of big-deal book cover designers working today. He's done the covers for new editions of Dostoevsky and James Joyce, for Sonia Sotomayor's memoir, and most famously, for Stieg Larsson. And now for Peter Mendelssohn, because this summer he's published two books of his own. One, called Cover, is a collection of some of his best designs over the years. The other, though, is very different, a smart and wide-ranging illustrated essay about the experience of reading. It's called What We See When We Read. And he is here with me right now, Peter Mendelssohn. Welcome to Studio 360. Thank you for having me. So as I said, your big commercial breakthrough design was for the cover of Stieg Larsson's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. When that first one came out, it didn't really look like a book of that mystery thriller genre at all. Can can you describe it? The final jacket for The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was uh, yellow, which is a bright yellow, which is already stepping outside of the norms for the genre. Which They're, is dark and blue yeah, and red that's and right. brown. And there's like a shadowy guy with a trench coat or there's like a, a dagger with blood on it or there's definitely blood on it. <laughs> that's the big – like the signifier ne plus ultra for that genre is blood. You could put a puppy on a cover and splatter it with blood and you have a crime novel. Um, however, this jacket was bright yellow, so already we're, we're way outside of the comfort zone. Um, there is no murder weapon. There is no damsel in distress. Uh, there's nothing brooding or sinister about it. The typography's broken up in a pretty kind of jigsaw way. Uh, there is a very stylized Asian dragon that sort of weaves in and out of the typography. Um, I would say that it's only merit is that it's reasonably pretty. You know, that is the thing that a jacket should be. And millions and millions of copies later, if you were going to be judging that and those covers now, what what do you think? Um, I think they did the trick. I'm not that embarrassed of them. Um, I think I would have been embarrassed if there had been all of that blood and a gun or something. or, Or at least I wouldn't have been proud of being involved in the endeavor. And I do feel in a way that we published the hell out of those books. And now and for the rest of your life, uh, you will be known as the guy who did those. Right. How's that? (laughs) Well, you know, Kurt, I mean, part of this idea of publishing two books of my own is to try to – Change the subject? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Um, So do you have – as as when you look at cover designs, pet peeves like – you know, the, all these books that have come out in the last few years with women from the, from the neck down or one that I have noticed for many years, which is any novel set in Africa has to have these like fake little carved wood uh, letter forms. I mean, are there things that bug you as as cliches or formula? Yeah, well, you said it. Anything that's a cliche, anything that um, anything that has been done in the past and thus we think, well, this book sold pretty well and it had the girl shot from the back on the cover. So we'll do more of that. Yeah, exactly. Hence, that is the thing that made that book do well. So let's do it again. However, it's really, it turns out to be quite the opposite. I think the best bet that any book jacket has of getting your attention is 
by being different from everything else around it. I mean, that's, that is really how something grabs your attention. Well, and one of the uncliched of the many uncliched things that I saw in, in this book cover is your, your covers for the Kafka novels, which have these big, bright colors. Right. That, that doesn't seem very Kafka-esque. Well, see, that's right. And I mean, part of the fun of that experience of doing that Kafka project was not just getting people to look at the covers for Kafka differently, but hopefully encouraging people to read him slightly differently. I mean, there are these wonderful stories of Kafka reading Metamorphosis for Friends and just laughing riotously. I mean, they're funny books in their own way. And my hope was is that if you make sort of funny and playful and exuberant Kafka covers, that people will bring that attitude towards a reading of the books. Um, I, looking at your work in this in this monograph, a lot of your covers remind me of books that are in my and were in my parents' library from the 50s and 60s and 70s, not in some in-your-face madmen retro way, but but in their simplicity and in their abstraction and being less decorative and and understated is – I mean, it, well, is yeah. that just because that's who you are or did you go back and look a lot of 1962 books? No, actually I didn't go back but I have very specific memories of the books on my parents' shelves and they've always sort of stayed with me. And I would say that that's the generation I feel most sort of simpatico with and there was this wonderful period in the 40s and 50s and early 60s where book design for literary fiction was primarily abstract – and some of the most beautiful jackets came out of that period and those – I mean at least they're some of my favorites. Are there any genres or authors that you just would say, nah, I'm not interested? I don't think I've ever refused to work on a book jacket before. I think probably if I would, it would be on political grounds. But I've never run up against that before. But my anti-gun control book, you won't design? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that is the one actually. <laughs> <laughs> so in this new book, this book of new material that you've written called What We See When We Read, you you write very interestingly to me about how we each think we know how fictional characters look. Uh, we think, oh, Anna Karenina, I know what she looks like. But when somebody is actually quizzed about, well, so what does that character look like? They're very fuzzy and approximate. Um, why is that and why are we sure until we're quizzed, which doesn't happen often, that we know what somebody looks like? Despite the fact that I do this every day, I try to draw these sort of visual uh, elements out of books in order to put them on book jackets. It, it never really occurred to me until this year that it was kind of a strange process. And we have this sort of myth that that process, the, the process of reading, being a reader, is sort of like sitting in a room and watching a movie. And the more I looked into what the process really felt like as opposed to these myths of what reading is supposed to be like, the more I found that there was this very wide discrepancy between um, you know, how we talk about reading and what reading actually is. You are, I'm guessing, in your mid-40s. Yes, sir. Um, you've only been a, a, a professional designer for the last dozen years or so. You had this whole other career as a classical uh, pianist. What was wrong with that job and why at 30 – Whatever did you decide? I'm gonna I'm gonna start over. Uh, well, I, I get career makes it sound much more glamorous than it was, and maybe that was the problem. You were being paid to, <laughs> to perform on the piano, right? Very little. 
which is really the crux of the problem I had just had. Uh, I have two girls. My, the first of them had just been born and we needed health insurance. And and had you always thought, well, if, if I weren't playing the piano professionally, I could be a designer or was this a new thought? This was brand new. I mean, really the transition from piano to design took maybe around a year or so. I, After my wife and I were married, I had designed our wedding invitation. I designed some other kind of little things. Uh, you know, it just seemed as good a shot as any for a new career. I mean, really, honestly, I might have ended up in anything. Okay, you have no formal training. Your mother uh, suggested to a friend that he talked to his friend who's the famous designer Chip Kidd, and I hey, talked to my son. Right. That's how it happened? Yeah, that's how it happened. Um, my mom's friend is the Scrabble partner of Chip Kidd's boyfriend. Um, so through that game of telephone, somehow I got an interview with Chip at Knopf. And he said, you're a kid, you're a natural, you're hired, <laughs> basically? Kind of. He. It was a little less dramatic than that. Uh, after I met with him and showed him my work, he seemed happy with what I had done. Um, and then I think it was maybe two days later, I got a call from him and said, you know what, someone just left. Why don't you come back in? And I met everybody else and I was working there a week later. And uh, it's the only job I've ever had other than playing the piano. Now, you design books. You've, you've you know, gotten to this place as, as a acclaimed book designer. Uh, you could keep doing this presumably forever. Do you have a wish to sort of try other things? And, oh, if I can design that, I could design this or I could design that. <laughs> Coming to a profession late, the way I did to design – makes you keenly aware of the fact that, you know, hopefully life is long and full of surprises and the road forks many times. And I feel like the big lesson for me about moving from the piano to design is that there are other things out there. Well, and that big risky decision worked out. Yeah, it worked great. That doesn't ensure that the next one will. Well, I look forward to whatever it is you choose to keep designing, including if it's simply books. Thank you so much. Peter Mendelssohn's books cover and what we see when we read are out right now. <laughs> 